Jake and Blake presents Volcano and Dawn of the Gods. say goodbye and I say hello. Hello, hello. Welcome to Shake and Blake. I, <laughs> I am a big-nosed man who comes from the north, so I, Ian Wilson, am very much the Ringo star of this podcast. I also like Thomas the Tank Engine. And uh, down in the south of England, it can only be the Paul McCartney of the podcast on the grounds that he's still alive. Mr. Dave Probert. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Excellent. I put some effort into that one. Good, good. <laughs> We're a team of highly trained professionals. Absolutely. <laughs> well, how are you, first of all? I'm very well, Mr. Wilson. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I've, I've just got back from a, a, a weekend at my old alma mater, which is to say Lancaster, the greyest, ah. wettest place in all of the world. You've not been to Reading, have you? I have. I've, have I've, you? I've been to the festival many a time. Ah. <laughs> I know it's depressing, but that doesn't necessarily make it... Uh, uh, so, uh, apart from offending everyone who lives in Reading, um, I'm well, a... I'd, I'd like to apologise to the people of Reading, but I'm not going to. <laughs> That's the thing my best friend from Lancaster University comes from, Reading. So, oh, so I, I have a couple of excellent friends who live in Reading, and I, I always love sort of, you know, want to go there to catch up with them, but I hate Reading. Okay. <laughs> I won't pro... Oh, I, I suppose that's because you're from Swindon. No, it's actually got nothing to do with regional football rivalries. I've just been to Reading and thought it was shit. <laughs> I'm sure there are many people from Reading who've been to Swindon and thought Swindon was shit. Because I've, it is. Yeah, yeah, I've been to Swindon. Yeah, it did. The, the web of Great Britain. <laughs> Although I do like its nonsensical roundabouts. <laughs> and the, 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 the amazing fact that the headquarters of both the National Trust and the English Heritage are there. Yes. With a railway museum parked in between. Yep. That just struck me as odd. And right next door to it, there's a designer outlet village. There is, yes. So, so you can catch up on British history and pick up some cheap designer shoes. When we, oh, we, we should be hired by the Swindon Tourist Board. Please, God, though, I'm not taking their money. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, isn't this a British sci-fi podcast? It is. So, remember when we used to talk about Blake 7? Uh, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, should we talk about Blake 7 now, then? Oh, why not? Right. Okay, well, well we, we do have some, uh, some Blake 7 news. Ooh. 
Yes. The uh, the release of uh, the the Liberator Chronicles from Big Finish has been released this month. Ah, the month yes. of February. Well, this is our March episode, but yes. Yes, but we're recording it in the month of February. We are we are recording this quite early, by the way. So yes, um, uh, if you if, if you have you... sent feedback or anything and we miss it, uh, sorry. <laughs> I, I did try to warn people via Twitter, but uh, yeah, it's just I could have started friends. a Facebook group, but for you know, like for the eight people who listen to this podcast, it seemed a bit extravagant. Ah <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> anyway, yes. So we now have some. Uh, Fuller synopses for the three stories. Go for it. Which uh, the first story is the uh, Turing Test by Simon Gurrier. Uh, after evading an attack by Cassini pirates, the Liberator heads to the rogue moon of uh, ooh, Quentil. <laughs> I, I think that says <laughs> where Avon and Villa infiltrate a top secret Federation science facility. Villa assumes the guise of Doctor Yarding Gill, an expert in digital memory. And Avon is his creation, a super-advanced robot that can pass for human. In fact, he does. Can they maintain the ruse long enough to complete their mission? And will the Cassini pirates catch up with them? Uh, I'm guessing that uh, that places it directly after Bounty. Oh, well, I'll get to that in a moment. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, the next story is Solitary stars Michael Keating and Anthony Howell. Uh, Villa is in solitary confinement. His friends have abandoned him. His only contact with the world outside is Neuron, a scientist from the planet Auron. Amnesiac and confused, Villa attempts to piece together recent events, a mission to Dulcimer 4, an important meeting, and a visit to the jungle world of Terulus Major. In the depths of the foliage, the truth is waiting, and it's more terrifying than Villa could possibly have imagined. <laughs> okay. Yep. And the last story is Counterfeit by Peter Angelides, which stars Gareth Thomas as Blake and Paul Darrow as Avon. Uh, the Bovee Mining Facility, a Federation slave camp worked by disgraced scientists. The planet shouldn't be of interest, but it is. Avon's investigations reveal it's rich in Elysium, a mineral that can change from one substance to another. With it, the Federation could be invulnerable. Blake teleports down to Bovee, but gets more than he bargained for. There's another visitor to the facility, and his presence changes the whole game. And it says that these stories take place between Project Avalon and Breakdown. Ah, I mean, yeah, I, I remember you saying that the the first time the press release came out. Now I now I come to think about it. But um the reason I hark back to Bounty isn't that group the Cassini Pirates. Uh no, that, those are the Amagans. Right. Okay. The Omar Sharif the Omar Pirates. Sharif Pirates, yes. So yes, they're uh, available from the Big Finish website. You can get them as a CD or a download. Uh, if you go to uh, bigfinish.com forward slash blakes hyphen seven, you could uh, there's a, a series of uh, package deals you can get, and they're also doing um, some original novels as well. Okay. Uh, I don't think either of those have been released yet. Or maybe, maybe yeah, it's coming in May according to this. Ooh, just two short months away. Blake Seven: The Forgotten by Kevin Scott and Mark Wright. After carrying out a successful attack against the Federation communications station on Xantos Beta, 
The Liberator is hounded by Travis into an area of negative space, an area that appears blank on all star charts, and the Liberator penetrates deeper into the sector. The journey becoming, becomes increasingly erratic, and Jenna struggles to keep the ship under control as Zen goes offline, and all systems shut down. The abandoned space station they see looming ahead seems like the crew's only chance of survival, but they don't know what is waiting for them on board, or, th or that their troubles have just started. And that novel is apparently set between Mission to Destiny and Duel. Yeah, so, it's, again, still fairly early on in the show's um, history. Yes. Very interesting. So I'm, I'm just waiting for that great Tarrant novel. Yeah, yes. Yeah, on on the 30th of November, apparently there's a book called Archangel as well, which is going to be set uh, not long after Gan's death. Uh, wait, Gan died? Quiet, you. <laughs> yeah. But yes, it's, uh, there's some fresh Blake 7, and if you fancy getting your hands on it, get to uh, bigfinish.com. Yeah, do it. It's there for the taking. <laughs> but should we uh, go to the emails, then? Why not? Uh, sh shall I open? Oh, go on. Well, we have uh, some feedback for uh, Volcano from the Orgs. Good, good. And our good friend, Mr. Gareth Edwards, has emailed us as well. Again, he sent us some feedback for the episodes, which we'll get to, but he's also sent us a short message saying, uh, First of all, you made me laugh so hard as heard you read my feedback. <laughs> We're laughing at the grammar. Ironically, his next sentence is, This time I will check my grammar and spelling. <laughs> We're laughing with you, sir, not at you. <laughs> he says, I can't afford any more Cliff Richards. <laughs> well, who can? Yours, Gareth. Brackets, now worried to answer his door. Brackets, inside brackets, lol, close brackets, close outer brackets. P.S. Anyone up for a game of Space Monopoly? <laughs> we'll get uh, to that. You'll get to that. <laughs> So, yes, that's a, a two for the Geek Planet Inbox. Two, you say. Two, I say. Score draw! Yes! Oh, <laughs> thank God. Anyway, um, okay, the first one comes in yep. from uh, <laughs> a forum I of ours called Muppet. Ah, Muppet, yes, I've, I've seen Muppet posting on the uh, Earth 2 forums. In, as he does. Yes. And uh, he is <laughs> loath to give a real name, so I'm afraid I'm just going to have to refer to him as Muppet. Well, he seems comfortable with it, so why should we get in the way? Well, I know, because it's, it's very much a British slang thing, where it's less of a term of endearment. I, I know. <laughs> Which is odd, considering the Muppets actually kind of came to life in Britain, but there you go. Anyway, sorry. Tangent aside. <laughs> Uh, Muppet states, Greetings! Smiley face. Hopefully I have sent this to the right place this time. Shocked face. Firstly, I'd like to... <laughs> Sorry, are you going to be narrating all the emoticons? Uh, there's only one more. Oh, okay, carry on. <laughs> uh, te I suppose technically the, the first one was actually a grinning face with the capital D. Right. Anyway, firstly, I'd like to say that Dana Rock and is easily my second favourite female character and a worthy replacement for Jenna, in my opinion. Smiley face. Now that... <laughs> <laughs> you were warned. Okay. No, <laughs> now, 
Now that the Federation is a bit on the foobard side of things, who would you choose to bring together the disparate elements and forge a new and stronger Federation, bringing about a brighter, orangey future for all? And uh, Muppet then um, uh, gives us some uh, examples of Blake Seven characters if they ran their own political parties. Ah, so tell we, on. Well, we start with Servalan, the Dictator Party. Blake. <laughs> That's called the Federation, isn't it? <laughs> Blake, the Dick Party. That's an entirely different website. Well, <laughs> is that there with the Lemon Party? Yeah, whatever you do, don't Google the Dick Party. Good God, no. Uh, cosplay Travis, the Mexican Hat Party. <laughs> that sounds rather fun. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> you need a piñata. <laughs> Villa, the Asset Redistribution Party. Better known as the Banker Party. Ooh, political. Well, quite. And then then that well-known Blake Seven character, Zippy from Rainbow. The the Don't Touch Me There George Party. Uh, That's that's gone to a dark place all of a sudden, hasn't it? That's my childhood ruined. Unfortunately, in my imaginary world, there is no abstaining, and failure to vote results in a couple of days of Moonraker Clockwork Orange style. Oh, I tell, I tell a lie, shocked face. Um, <laughs> sorry, it was, mid, it was in the middle of a sentence. Also, I'm afraid Avon is not on that list, as he gives no fucks, and is busy sunning himself in Acapulco with fine ladies and a margarita. Muppet. Well, thanks for that, Muppet. Yes, thanks for that, Muppet. A nice flight into the surreal. I'd like to throw Connell's hat in the ring for that particular uh, (laughs) honour. Well, I I can picture Connell sunning himself with beautiful ladies a lot more than I can picture Paul Darrow in the Bahamas. Paul Darrow as he is now. In a speedo. <laughs> oh god. Anyway, <laughs> m- moving away from that. The second email. <laughs> Backing away very slowly from that. I'd say at great speed. <laughs> uh, our second email comes in from Graham Mills, who says, "Hi, gents. So here we are, halfway through the epic story that was Blake Seven. As I said before." I had never seen it on its original run, but I recall my next-door neighbours were big Blake 7 fans, and I remember being four years old and hearing my neighbour say to my mum, I don't know why it's called Blake 7 anymore, as Blake is no longer in it, and there are no longer seven of them. Good point. (laughs) Uh, Going back to the episodes you reviewed in your last podcast, I have to say that I was disappointed how Blake and Jenna were just mentioned and never seen, as the line Blake didn't want to leave, followed by Jenna's gone with Blake, didn't really explain where they were and why they were not with the others by the life capsules. But I did enjoy both Aftermath and Powerplay, and as I said in my last email, 
They worked quite well as a feature-length edited BBC video. I was bothered a bit by the fact that Avon had to use ORAC to contact Zen, but Villa was able to contact him by simply using his communicator teleport bracelet. Also, I could not work out how the life capsules landed so far apart from each other, as it took the Liberator several hours to reach Avon, then several more hours to reach the planet where Villa and Callie were stranded on. Another thing that has often bothered me is Orak can control the teleport and walk at... not he, he can't walk, that's a slip of the tongue and work and talk to several computers on the Liberator, yet it is said that Aurac can only connect to computers that use Taral cells. So surely the all-mysterious and advanced system that built the Liberator, who had not had contact with the Federation or Earth, would not have had access to the Taral cell technology. So how was Aurac able to destroy the Liberator's sister ship? and operate the computers aboard the Liberator. I've d pausing there. Yes. It's a very good point. I would maintain, because obviously Ensel was a very advanced computer genius, Yeah. that the computers on the system would, if they don't actually use Tarial cells, which Ensel invented, use something very similar. Because mm. if all advanced computers are being based on the same sort of principles that they would contain an equivalent to the Tariel cell, and therefore that Aurac wouldn't be able to access it. That is how I would rationalise that. Uh, I, I suppose that's fair. I mean, the thing is, as Graham says, the system in itself is quite mysterious, in that we really don't know a hell of a lot about them, apart from just what happened in the episode um, Redemption. It's pretty much a one-and-done kind of... Should we explain the origin of the Liberator? Yes. Here it is. Everyone blows up. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, I, I think he's got a point. Um, at the same time, I think he probably can rationalise your way around it to a certain extent. Well, I would also maintain that the uh, citizens of the system aren't necessarily aliens. They could have been planets that weren't part of the Federation. And therefore, the system could have been developed off the back of Ensor's work. Ah, now that is true. I like that l a lot more. Your previous thing was bollocks, Dave, but this is brilliant. <laughs> Why, thank you. Not a problem. <laughs> Graham goes on to say, I am also a big Minder fan. And re-watching the episodes, it has struck me how many actors and actresses that appeared in Blake 7 have also been in Minder, both the original and the recent failed comeback updated version. Was there a recent failed comeback updated version? Oh yes, they tried like a series of it on Channel 5, had Shane Ritchie in it. Oh, Channel 5, well that would make sense. Yep. No wonder I hadn't heard of it. So, starring Shane Ritchie. Shane Ritchie was the Arthur Daly figure. <laughs> I see. Then... Yep. <laughs> was that was that Dennis Waterman's character? No. Oh right, that George, was George Cole's character. Oh right, okay. He he was the uh, the wheeler dealer, yeah, the geezer, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Did you know? Shit. Before Peter Rogers died, I'm I'm putting my carry on hat here. Okay. 
because uh, people at Earth Tech, it's been such a while, people at Geek Plus Online might not know, that uh, <laughs> I write a, a very occasional column um, about uh, where I, I just go through the uh, British carry-on films, which are a, a series of somewhat lowbrow uh, British comedy films from the late 50s through to the late 70s, with one awful rebirth in 1992 called Carry On Columbus. I would almost uh, describe it as an afterbirth. Well, there's no answer to that, um, especially as I haven't actually seen it. So, um, you know, it's unfair for me to get too vitriolic until I find... Unfortunately, Love Film doesn't stock it. <laughs> and that tells you all you need to know. I ha- I have honestly tried to torrent it and nothing has come up. So, it might be... Because torrenting it involves admitting you own it in the first place. I know. And somehow I doubt it's actually seen a DVD release as it. My carry-on DVD box set? Yep. It's not in that. <laughs> so, oh dear. So, um, anyway. But, um, Peter Rogers, because that was pretty much his his one trick... Uh, after the 1950s carry on films um, he did try and, to have another go at uh, resurrecting the carry on franchise um, uh, shortly before his um, passing a few years ago uh, and it would have been called carry on London and it would have starred such acting luminaries as Shane Ritchie Kelly Brook Vinnie Jones and the more and more I actually read about it, it, it's a terrible thing to say, but the gladder I was, he died. No, I was thinking exactly the same yeah, thing. So... You've you got to wonder if some sort of unearthly power just decided to step in. <laughs> so, yeah. Rogers, you've had your time. You've tempted fate. We have come for you. So, there we go. Um, but, sorry. Moving away from that rather dark turn. Um, yeah. Many cast members have been in mind of both the original and the recent failed comeback updated version. This includes actors from the main cast, such as Gan, Cosplay Travis, and Dana. I can just imagine you doing a mind account every podcast after playing the mind theme tune, then shouting the mind account. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Well, he does preface it saying, I should really not drink alcohol whilst emailing. <laughs> oh well, I had better finish up now as I have waffled on for long enough. But I promise to tell you about the Dutch DVD releases next time. Bye for now. Hey. Best wishes, Graham. Well, thank you, Graham. Yes, thank you very much, Graham. Um, yeah, a, a minder. That, that really passed me by. You probably weren't even born. Yeah, uh, I, d- I doubt I was. When did it finish? Oh, um, it probably would have been on after you'd been born. I think it's like, uh, uh yeah. late 80s, early 90s, I think it Oh, right, up. okay. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd be alive by then. Yeah. But not cogent enough to understand the key concepts and, uh, deep subtext of Minder. Yes. <laughs> so, um, that's, uh, all that's in the Earth 2 inbox of this month. Excellent. Well, thank you everybody for uh, emailing in. Indeed. And so, uh, shall we 
enter our first episode. Let's enter the volcano. Hey! Hey! It is odd, though, isn't it? An unusual phenomenon. We haven't come across it before, have we? I said it's odd, isn't it? What is odd? That damn great volcano right in the middle of the planet. The only active one in the entire place, according to Zen. Sitting there, bubbling away. What's Zen? The volcano. Well, Zen also said it has been bubbling away for at least 20 years. Just the same. Sooner them than me. Does anyone know the reason why this planet... What's it called? Obsidian. Obsidian. Even the name sounds nasty. Do you know why it escaped the Galactic War? If it did. Well, Zen says there's no sign of any battle fleet wreckage on the surface. Well, as far as we can see. Nobody wanted it, that's what I reckon. And very sensible, too. Let us settle this neurotic little worry. Zen, do you have sufficient information to be able to tell us when the next major volcanic eruption on the planet Obsidian is to be expected? Federation Report 10-sub-5, date code 303. That's a long time ago. Atmospheric and ground tests undertaken by Federation assessment team, collated in Federation teletext, predicted no heavy volcanic activity for some years. How many years is some years? No more detailed prediction was made. Wonderful. And why did the Federation assessment team stop bothering? Does anybody know that? Sen, do you know? That information is not available. Very helpful. Avon, those Federation assessment teams were always followed up by invasion and colonization. Usually. Do you know of another case when they weren't? No. And the phrase, some years, is meaningless. Perhaps it was meant to be. The Federation came and looked at Obsidian and decided it wasn't worth colonizing. Simple as that. But if you're right, those two are wasting their time down there. That's always a possibility. Dana says the people are friendly. But then... Sometimes one's friends can be more of a liability than one's enemies. They're going to check out that rumour too, don't forget. That Blake was here, it's getting to be a fairly common rumour. We could spend the rest of our lives chasing down the ones we've picked up so far. Still, now we're here? Oh yes, now we're here. So then, our first episode, this episode, is Volcano. And we literally start with a volcano. Um, which Tarrant and Dana, our newest uh, recruits to the Liberator crew, are beamed down. Um, not so much for a training exercise, but to actually locate uh, a chap who was a friend and uh, fellow colleague of uh, Dana's father. So Tarrant and Dana discuss their new roles whilst uh, moving their way around a volcano and looking for the man in question. That man in question being Alfred the Butler. I knew you were going to say that. I was born <laughs> you in. Knew ni- you were going to say Alfred the Butler. I was born in 1985. Therefore, <laughs> to me, he is Alfred the Butler. <laughs> you were born in 1985. Would therefore have been four when Batman came out. Ah, but ten when Batman Forever came out. Fair enough. So, um. <laughs> So he is observing uh, the two new strangers to his planet, a planet called Obsidian. <laughs> it's not called planets. It's called <laughs> Obsidian. There we go. Um, which has been classed as a highly kind of undesirable planet, not least because there are these bloody volcanoes everywhere. Well, there, uh, there, is, there is but one. Uh, and... But it one's dangerous enough. Yes. Um, so he's observing them with his own robot, Alfred, 
Um, and his son, who is called... Bersha. Thank you. <laughs> son of Alfred um, is <laughs> displaying somewhat... I don't know why I bother sometimes. <laughs> All right. Bersha! <laughs> Bersha is less than keen to see strangers walking about the planet. Um, so he and a couple of people go out to capture them through some kind of spray mist gut. As it, this is happening, uh, on board the Liberator, um, the crew are trying to find out a bit more about Obsidian. Um, and I don't know if you picked up on this, but Zen actually got some of his information about the volcanic nature of uh, the volcano uh, from teletext. What? <laughs> I, I could have sworn... At some point, he said teletext readings in <laughs> Zen scanning through CFAX. Well, there we go. Uh, for our American listeners, um, <laughs> teletext was uh, Britain's answer to the internet um, before the internet came along, uh, which essentially was just like numerical pages of code. Um, that you could access by your, your television. Yes. And do you want to know who's a big star on Teletext? Who's a big star on Teletext, Ian? Mr. Adam Fisher. Is he? Well, I say star. He still regards it as a legitimate form of broadcast. Um, <laughs> of course he does. So he, he likes to give Teletext as much material as possible, as he also does the... Um, freebie national newspaper, the Metro. Well, no, it's good to see him <laughs> embracing free media. <laughs> One of these days he'll get on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Long after people have stopped using it. But anyway, that's a tangent. So Dana and Tarrant wake up and um, discover that... Uh, Alfred and uh, Alfred, sorry, Michael Goff, <laughs> and his uh, character name is Hower, although I will just refer to him as Alfred. Um, is the leader of a community of pacifists. Uh, they love pacifism uh, to a ludicrous extent, frankly. We get to learn a bit more about it much later on. But essentially, when Dana and Terence say, well, we're here looking for a base, possibly to recruit some people in the fights, Howard's like, oh, no, I, I don't like that. I've renounced weapons making. Yes, I remember your dad, but we, our paths kind of diverged. And Homo sapiens can advance no further. So, so he's not exactly uh, agreeable the reason that uh, the Liberator crew are down there. Um, as this is going on, Servalan has now fully been installed as the, not Supreme Commander, but the um, Super Chancellor. Uh, I'm sure there's a better name. President. Uh, yeah, that, we'll go with that then. Uh, <laughs> she's the president. I only say that because somebody does address her as Madam President. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I, I had to watch this episode pretty quickly, so I apologise. 
Um, uh, she is heading towards Obsidian um, on board a ship with uh, some mutoids. Uh, good to see them again. And um, a chap that she's grooming as the next uh, Supreme Commander, uh, who is a, an unpleasant chap called Maury. And um, essentially, she wants the Liberator captured, and Maury's like, huh, easier said than done. So well, yes, yes, it is. You see, some of them are down there, so... etc. Et so, um... <laughs> well, you, you, you know... That's, that's slightly disturbing, you channeling server lad. <laughs> oh, sorry. Was that a good accent? I, I don't know what to say to it. Okay, well, moving <laughs> swiftly on. Um, essentially, Serverland tails off just by saying... I've got my eyes on this planet as a strategic point in the universe, which, again, is something the Liberator crew have noted, which is why they're, they're both sides are trying to curry favour uh, with Alfred and his, his race of people. Uh, did they have a name? Uh, the Pyreans. Right. Oh, well, that makes sense. Yes. Yes. Um, so, she says, I'm interested in this planet as a strategic point... Uh, I want the Liberator captured and uh, the Liberator crew kill them and the music gets dramatic and um, uh, we cut back on board the Liberator uh, Villa for the first time notes his opinions about Tarrant because apart from maybe 45 seconds at the end of the last episode they haven't shared a screen at all uh, we see that he's suspicious of Tarrant's and why not? Uh, and apparently he's been eyeing up Dana once or twice, which has been the source of much Avon and Callie gossip. But, uh, <laughs> what? It's a scene. <laughs> what they've been talking about during the Liberator's coffee morning. <laughs> Over their yoga and their board games. <laughs> oh, uh, the board games. <laughs> Still to come, yes. <laughs> uh, so back on the planet, um, you see, uh, Alfred gets a bit more wary of the the mission, and saying, "Well, if you're recruiting, you've clearly got enemies." Um, and uh, with this, we um, see the Federation starting to board board disembark down towards uh, Obsidian and um, Avon who is now kind of giving in to the fact that they really haven't heard back from Dana and Terrence at all uh, goes down as a one man search party uh, and very nearly gets teleported into the volcano because um, <laughs> uh, did, did you notice there was a kind of visual effect uh, a, yes. a, a kind of fire flashing up as if to say, ooh, what if he was suddenly dropped into a vocate? That would be a brave move. <laughs> yes, As possibly. if they were replacing the cast one by one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a revolving uh, door policy or Blake's out. Well, there we go. <laughs> it's the Logan's run of TV shows. <laughs> You can only do so many episodes. 
Villa, you're next. Um, so Servalen, uh, Maury, and some guards are now on this uh, planet surface, and they're expecting a message uh, from two of the Pyreans. Uh, they meet them. Servalen pleasantly thanks them for uh, delivering the message, and promptly asks for them to be executed. And Maury actually hesitates slightly, showing that he can kind of talk for Travis talk, but hesitates at walking his walk. Um, and the strange thing about it is they were somewhat unemotional at the prospect of being fired upon, because the hesitation allows for them at least five seconds of mortal panic, which they don't actually have. Uh, such is the extent of their pacifism. So, as Dana and Alfred chat, they kind of learn a bit more about uh, the Pyrian uh, population, but uh, they've largely been brainwashed. Or, that is to say, if they get aggressive feelings and sentiments, that um, they're actually meant to receive a slight electric shock to keep them pacified, and uh, he also force-feeds them uh, daily propaganda. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, it's very harmonious and everything, but uh, essentially it's a very kind of left-wing dictatorship. Um, very much so. <laughs> um, and as they're talking, Tarrant attempts to uh, broker uh, some kind of agreement with Bersha away from his father because uh, he recognises the fact that uh, there's something indefinable about Bersha that he can't quite put his finger on so he, he tries to uh, do a deal with him in another part of the facility um, as this is going on um, Avon sees the two corpses of this civilization and uh, beams quickly back up to the Liberator, noting the Federation's presence. Um, this Federation presence um, isn't lost on the members of the Liberator crew down there, as Bersha brings up Servalan, and um, he promptly betrays them to the Federation and uh, strips them of all of their bracelets. So, at uh, the moment, there's a bracelet count of four, but we're going to need to pay a bit, some slightly closer attention to this. Yes. Because uh, there's a lot of beaming up and down and back and forth. So, with two of the crew captured, um, we see that Sutherland's tightening the noose uh, from up above because there's a nearby space fleet uh, in position, ready to take on the Liberator as part of uh, a grander plan of actually capturing it. And um, Dana and Tarrant are tied up. However, Bersha insists that they aren't executed there and then, because, uh, you know, it's still against the ways of his people. So Mori kind of reluctantly leaves to get on um, with the other part of the plan, which is to beam aboard the Liberator thanks to Villa being a bit, um, how do we say, uh, under-cautious. 
Uh, in fact, um, in my notes it says Villa brings up Federation troops like a knobhead. Well, I've got idiot down, but uh, I, I, I think both apply. Yes. Uh, so, whilst Villa has effectively led to the capture of himself, Cali, Orak, and pretty much ultimately Avon, uh, Avon's on the bridge blissfully unaware of this because um, he's trying to firstly determine you know, whether the troops on the ground have actually made a move, which is to say, have they actually fired at anyone? And he's rather surprised that they haven't. Um, and then Zen picks up the fact that, um, oh, there's a space fleet nearby. So um, he uh, immediately um, sets in motion a uh, defensive strategy and... Um, just as he does, they get to shoot down one of the ships of uh, the advancing space fleet. Um, however, Servlan orders them to kind of uh, stay in position, not fire, um, you know, just essentially stick to the plan. As Avon works out what's going on, uh, he too is captured um, by Maury, and uh, things look a lot better Things look quite grim for the Liberator crew, let's put it that way. Um, however, Avon manages to make use of Mori's ignorance of both Orak and Zen um, to relay an order to Zen to fire a, a really big blast from the projectiles so that he can uh, retrieve his gun whilst everyone's knocked down. He manages to kill two of the Federation troops, but Mori shoots him in the arm, and uh, he and the remaining trooper take Orak back to the teleporter. They kidnap Callie, um, with Villa giving her an extra bracelet, uh, so she obviously doesn't suffer from any after-effects of uh, the teleportation, and they're sent back down to the surface of Obsidian. Villa then um, gets back up to the bridge. Uh, Servlan wants some kind of status report, so Villa bluffs, saying that everyone's there and they can pick, he can pick her out as part of the fleet, so they should uh, get lost. Servlan actually does get lost, but only because she works out that, you know, without the fervour of Blake, they're not necessarily the top of her priorities when she's got a, a crumbling federation to kind of rebuild. So um, she decides to, to just zoom off, effectively. And um, despite the hopelessness of the situation, um, Avon and Villa share a scene on the bridge as Avon kind of drinks his misery away. Um, Villa drinks his misery sorry, away. Sorry, yes, yes. Because uh, Avon's like, I need my wits about me. Because he's, he's got his arm uh, in a sling. Um, going back down to the surface, um, Alfred confronts Bersha uh, about the betrayal and the selling out of uh, <laughs> the two captives and uh, kind of gives the whole I'm very disappointed in you, son, kind of speech. Uh, to which... Um, <laughs> Bersha, he stands his ground and 
he states some very valid arguments against uh, for society uh, until his dad just says, okay, kill him um, in the nicest possible way. <laughs> in a very pacifist way. Yeah, with a, a lethal dose of gas. Um, but it was it was definitely quite sudden. <laughs> so and and quite unexpected. Um, so well, to be fair, they only had about ten minutes of the episode. That so is true. Something with him. That is true. So um, Howard releases Dana and uh, Tarrant, uh, noting the entire reason that they've always. Uh, Managed to stay, you know, out out the way of uh, Federation takeover is because there is a nuclear device at the core of the planet, uh, which is slowly killing uh, the Pyrians. But um, you know, there must be peace, there must be order, and you know, the second that gets sacrificed, then boom goes the planet. Um, so uh, <laughs> Dana and Towns were like. Okay, you're insane. Bye. Uh, and they beam back aboard. Well, no, they uh, contact the Liberator and uh, fill each other in on the situation. And um, Dana and Tarrant go to look for Callie and Orak because um, essentially that's the one. Th- that's one of two things that's stopping them leaving. The other being that uh, during the um, the kind of siege of the Liberator, um, there's almost no power left whatsoever, and it's going to take a bit of time to charge just so they can move. Um, so whilst Avon's busy fixing the Liberator, he sends uh, the ground crew off to, to go and rescue Callie, um, which they do thanks to... Um, Callie's uh, telepathy warning them of uh, Mori and his uh, fellow soldier uh, going looking for them. Uh, Tarrant heroically shrugs off being shot in the leg. <laughs> um, and gets Dana to deal with it through her... Um, I hesitate to say this, but uh, I'll say it anyway. Uh, some kind of tampon grenade. Really, Mr. Wilson, really? I, I did hesitate. And then I went she, for it. I, I did put in my notes that she, she has a grenade that's been colour-coordinated to her outfit. Uh, you see, that would have been much more child-friendly. <laughs> Still, we've got an explicit tag on iTunes. It's all, yeah. it's all good. Fuck you! Yes! <laughs> hey! You know what's... There's this word inside of Scunthorpe. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so, yes, the um, weapon of some sort, um, it, it throws, well, I'm guessing Mori just because he's the, the named character, uh, it knocks him back into the volcano himself, and he has a very kind of cosplay Travis-like death. Uh Insofar as there's a kind of green screen effect of him falling down into the <laughs> into the thing that humans really shouldn't come into contact with, yes. Uh, in this case, lava, and uh, in other cases, Noel Edmonds. Well, in many other cases, <laughs> no one need ever go near Noel Edmonds. 
Um, so yes, uh, three of them been back with Borak. Um, but there's still the problem of the approaching uh, Federation ships uh, and the Liberator not having enough time to actually power up and move. Um, so it's time for a deus ex machina and uh, average beams aboard a message saying yeah, the Federation have said that they're actually going to come aboard the planet. So um, it's time to go kablooey. And uh, he detonates the entire planet. And um, that stalls everything long enough for the Liberator to move off. Mr. Probert. Yes. What do you think? I actually quite like this. I really like it as well. Yeah. I'd say there's, it's probably a, about 80-20 split in favour of good. Okay, so should we start with that 20% just to get it out of the way then? Space pacifists. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're crap robots. They're crap robots, I'll definitely give you. Um, it, it, I, I was tempted to write down C, um, C3PO, but I was just like, no, it's not even that interesting. It, it, it's like they've hired a bunch of sort of mime artists from Covent Garden and just sort of covered them in tinfoil. <laughs> yeah, um, and I mean, my my problem with the space pacifist thing is there is a very interesting story in there of, like you say, it's a left wing dictatorship essentially. Yeah, with all this sort of indoctrination and and there's actually a very interesting story to be had there, but it's kind of really underdeveloped. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Because there is sort of other things going on. And the other things that are going on are brilliant. They're really good. Uh, especially considering this comes from the pen of Alan Pryor. <laughs> who uh, yes. I know <laughs> wrote your nemesis. He, he, well, I, I think he wrote your nemesis. The Keeper. Yeah, now you think about it. <laughs> Since when was my... No, I liked Hostage. Oh, Voice in the Past. Didn't you do Voice in the Past? Uh, Voice from the... No, that was Roger Parks. Ah. I take it all back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, um... I think all the... In terms of you know, re-establishing the status quo, there's lots of really interesting stuff going on here. I mean, I think Servalan is presented as a very credible threat... I mean, this is the first time the Federation has actually boarded the Liberator successfully. <laughs> true, true. Under Avon's I mean, command. Admittedly, Mori only hangs on to it for about, like, a minute <laughs> before Avon just sort of fucks him over, kills a couple of his mates, and Mori legs it. <laughs> he's not exactly uh, supreme commander material if he's, no. if he's got to follow Servalan. But then, having said that, you do get the feeling that... Uh, Decent recruits are thin on the ground these days. That's certainly fair. I mean, it's certainly very interesting that both the Liberator and the Federation are looking to consolidate a bit of power after the Intergalactic War. Yeah. Things are clearly in sort of disarray. Servalan... I mean, Servalan is in super ruthless mode in this episode. And I kind of get the um, get the reasoning behind it. Because, mm. I mean... Yeah, 
like you say, the two messages show up and she just orders them shot instantly. <laughs> and, yeah, I, you do get the feeling she's trying to re-establish the Federation's sort of merciless reputation. Well, yeah, because I, I mean, I suppose in the the previous two episodes we've seen her very much uh, out of her element and you know yeah. trying to come to terms with it. And here, you know, she is fully reasserting her dominance. Absolutely. What I think did slightly hurt Sevler, and I I understand why it was done, just to give like a a final threat to the Liberator for like the last five ten minutes, was the fact that she had that scene, like at the beginning of like the final third of the episode, where she realised that wait a second, without Blake, are the Liberator crew actually such a threat to me? You know. I, I, I can deal with him a bit later. Next time, Gadget. Next time, etc., etc. <laughs> but no, there is, and that scene ends very effectively with her with a kind of echoey voiceover as her ship blasts off into a dif- distant region of space. And I think if they'd left it there, if Servlan hadn't actually shown up for the rest of the episode, that would be a nice excuse to have her you know, off to the off to the sidelines um, for a little bit, not forever. But um, I've, I've made no secret of the fact that I see Servlan working better in small, concentrated doses than as um, like a continual threat over continual episodes. Otherwise, she runs the risk of um, the kind of character degradement as we saw with Travis. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I understand why she came back to say, "No, I actually do kill them. Go on, have a go. No, <laughs> why not?" <laughs> so, and you know, it did add a, a, a bit of threat. But um... I mean, I think you're right insofar that that speech is kind of in the wrong place in the episode. Yeah. So. It's you know like they could have taken that speech out and have that realization and stuck that at the end of the episode. Oh yeah, absolutely. I that mean, would have been fine. That would have made a lot more sense. And yet it's sort of done in the middle. And they go, "I'm leaving yeah. now," in a dramatic echoey voice. Oh, actually, I'm back. Yeah, that's it. That scene should end Serverland's involvement in this episode. Yeah, just I mean, just the way it was played, the dialogue. I mean, everything about it just screamed. Right. Okay. You may have well no actually there is a line of dialogue saying no one really won here today. Except the yeah. Pyreans. No, they didn't. They blew themselves up. But <laughs> but uh yeah, I mean Serverland in general was very good and it was nice to see her back in charge of the Federation. And uh, it's, it's always nice to see the mutoids. Yes. Although I, because <laughs> I, I I can never get past the fact that they're they're first mentioned on the debut of Travis. I don't think they're actually used in that particular episode. But um, right. at the time, Serverland was a bit surprised why Travis would request them as his staff. Um. And now it seems to be common practice that they're the kind of go-to, <laughs> go-to, 
kind of people who aren't like uh, foot soldiers. Um, again, I think it's going to be a case of resources as well. Servaland is very much sort of cobbled together a battle fleet out of ships that are left over, and if say like a lot of those have mutoid crew, that's probably what she's going to be left with. But she has used a mutoid crew of uh, blondes before. Oh yes, the Beverly sisters. Yes, indeed. Uh, but wasn't that when like she usually uses mutoids? I think when she's travelling a bit more incognito. Yeah, I suppose that's fair. But, uh, I, I mean, I think from a production point of view, it could just be that they started off as a certain idea to, to as something to be associated with Travis, and they proved popular enough, or, as you say, in terms of resources, you know, we've got these wigs, where else... <laughs> we, have, we have the costumes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, we can use them on this show, and maybe Doctor Who. If, <laughs> if, if we, maybe, possibly, it's something. Yeah, if, if we paint them. So, <laughs> so you know, if if you've got the props, then you may as well use them, I suppose. But uh, no, I, I like the fact that we are reintroduced to Servland as the president on board this dark ship, crewed by mutoids, and we get uh, Maury on here. And I, I suppose now is yeah. as good a time as ever to talk about him. And uh, when we say Maury, it's spelled M-O-R-I, rather than the uh, the American talk show host. Yes, yes. <laughs> Maury Povich. Yes. It's not Maury Povich working for Serverland. <laughs> I can't... Really waving a DNA test in her face or something. <laughs> I count myself lucky I've not ever seen an episode of that. Although... Oh, it's just it's... awful. It's been parodied on South Park, so I... I get the general gist of the yeah <laughs> of what we're talking about, but yes, uh, again, as you say, sort of Travis Light. Although I do like that he he gives Servalan a bit of sass and sort of says that the only reason he's there is because Servalan's offered him the position of supreme commander if he completes the mission, and he likes the idea of helming the Liberator. Yeah. Yeah. So. You can completely understand his motivations, and at the same time, he's sort of uh, reluctant to go down onto Obsidian because no one's invaded it, and so it's probably going to be quite dangerous. <laughs> uh, but it's, how... it's nice in that he doesn't have quite have the sort of uh, fierce loyalty that Travis had, certainly at one point. I mean, like, there isn't quite that sort of devotion to duty. Mm. Like uh, when he he's... um going to kill Tarrant and Dana and Bersha says no. He just goes, oh god, take it up with Servalan, I can't be bothered with this now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, he does get sort of a verbally slammed by Orak of all people. <laughs> when, he, when he refers to it as a magic box. <laughs> yeah. Clearly tongue-in-cheek, he's not being sort of like stupid, but then Orak takes him to task for the misuse of the word magic. Yes. <laughs> it's like, he... I mean, he's obviously heard of Orak and, and what it can do. It's just he's not quite as eloquent as, well, Orak. So he doesn't, uh, <laughs> it doesn't come out quite the way it should. The other thing I do love about this episode is the fact that the Liberator gets into a space battle. Yeah. Well, unlike Blake, who as soon as he saw Federation pursuits, it was like, shit, run away, <laughs> run away. Everyone's like, 
it must be about like six or seven ships. Yeah. And everyone's like, right, have it, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Although having said that, I mean, in um, Horizon. Yes. It was all stated that the the Liberator couldn't survive a sustained attack by three pursuit ships, and it's what three pursuit ships coming at the Liberator, which makes Avon go down and rescue the rest of the crew. Here, there's like six or seven of the things, and the Liberator's kicking the shit out of them. And in, in fact, more specifically, Zen is kicking the shit out of them. <laughs> On his own. Because, yeah, because like, as, as soon as Avon gives the, um, the order, the surreptitious order to Zen to attack, in order to get one up on Mori. <laughs> uh, yeah, Zen just goes postal. <laughs> in fact, late, later on, Avon says that the energy banks have been greatly depleted because, as he puts it, Zen got a bit carried away. <laughs> I love the fact that Zen's just been sitting there playing possum and like, right, let's come on! Come on! Have well, it! I'm a liar! <laughs> in a very subtle way, it's given Zen more character than he's had in the past season. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although, it just tickles me the fact that all those times the Liberator were running away, they could have just, like, Zed, deal with that, will you? And he goes, right! <laughs> <laughs> I, I sort of like the idea of a ship's computer that's constantly spoiling for a fight. <laughs> well, I suppose that would make him the shipboard computer equivalent of Scrappy-Doo. Oh, God. <laughs> Let me at him! Let me at him! <laughs> Scrappy too. <laughs> Jesus. That's the thing. When you're four or five, you don't realise that he's an annoying prick. Yes, I know. But then you grow older and suddenly all your childhood heroes, Scrappy Doo, Orco, Snarf, <laughs> you know, all of them are actually very unamusing. Yes. Yes, they are. Very unamusing. And I also love after the space battle where the, uh, Villa goes up and <laughs> gives Servalan what for. <laughs> he does bluff her really rather well, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> I like the fact that Servalan's like, Villa? Seriously? Um, either because she still thinks that he's had his organs harvested by now. Or, <laughs> or she's just completely... Ki- oh, so you're still alive, are you? Oh yeah, we're all alive. We're all, I mean, it, it's that's a bullshit way he's talking, but you know, it, ultimately it, it kind of drives off the remaining ships. Yeah. So in his own way, um, he's made the situation better after he himself making the situation so bad in the first place. He does show great presence of mind in that bit, I've got to say. That, you know, he does sort of successfully bluff it out, and, and quite convincingly as well. He, he's got a bit of tough talk going. Like, he gets a bit of snark in as well. When it, when it, <laughs> like the way he keeps referring to her as Madam President. Yeah. I, I do like it when the, the crew of the Liberator kind of puncture the pomposity of Serverland. It's like whenever Blake was facing down with her. Oh, it's the Supreme Commander. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so um, Villa getting in on the act. Villa of all people. Uh, no, it's good stuff. Yeah, I, I enjoyed all of that. And 
again, like I said, the, the Federation is presented as a very credible threat. Uh, the Liberator crew and the Liberator itself puts on a bloody good showing in seeing them off. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't somebody getting lucky. This isn't, you know, Travis and the Crimos getting beaten up by a crippled old man. Crimos! <laughs> so this is right. This is a force to be reckoned with. They've got warships and stuff, and you, you see why they want the Liberator as well. Yeah. Because the Liberator is laying waste these things left, right, and centre, and there's no one even driving. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it is a very good story, but I agree, the kind of... the bad bit about the story isn't bad at all. It's just that of of the two amalgamated stories, one of them kind of has to lose out for the amount of material you, you could work with. And so, um, unfortunately, Michael Goff kind of gets sidelined quite a bit, which is a shame, because... You know, he's Michael Goff. You know. Yeah, I mean, Michael Goff is a tremendous actor, and he's, you know, he's a mark of quality on anything he turns up in. I mean, I, I mean, I, he's I, one of the few people who escaped from Batman and Robin with anything resembling dignity. Pretty much, and he spent all of that film in bed. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> but. So, uh, he does seem a little bit wasted here. He does, and yet he does have such a presence at the same time. Oh yeah, I mean he he can't help but sort of walk on, you know, walk on screen and go. I mean, firstly, obviously, you go, oh look, it's Alfred from Batman. All right, all right. But but no, having said, to be honest, I, I still kind of do that with Michael Goff as well because <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I, I was like twelve when I saw Batman when it first came out. So yeah, yeah, he does have that tremendous presence, as you say. There's a, there's a kind of like a venerability about him. He comes off as very venerable. Mm. And maybe it's... I don't know. It's, it's a weird thing, because coming from my uh, direction, I, I mean, obviously, I, I know I knew him as Alfred long before I ever saw Blake Seven. So I'm projecting, like, this, this kindly butler onto um, the character... But I mean, the character's not a nice guy at all. I mean, no, he's very—he is very much a benevolent dictator. He's very polite and civil. I mean, I don't. Th- apart from his confrontation with his son, there isn't a point where he I mean, loses his temper. Isn't quite the right word because I mean, they don't even really do that. And once Bursha shows that, oh, he, he's a bit different from all, all the rest, it's like. Ah, oh dear, well, just have to kill... Oh, you've been infected with the, vo- the voice of the animal, or something like that. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm projecting a kind of nice image onto this. Nasty and yet, as I say, civil character. Who yeah. isn't even outwardly malevolent. Which is why... Not at all. Not at all. I mean, because it's so obvious to see why Serverland's a villain. Yeah. But, I mean, Michael Goff is... And the character of Hauer, he's completely different. You know, he will die to preserve his beliefs of pacifism, where the last thing Servalan ever wants to do is die, and she she will kill people to attain ultimate power. Um, So it's very interesting seeing that kind of uh, 
juxtaposed villain, even though they obviously didn't share any scenes together. Um, but, I mean, despite the fact I'm kind of projecting a, a kind of kind image onto him, just mentally, I mean, obviously before this, he was, like, well-known for Hammer Horror films, and um, yes. he he played the odd Doctor Who villain now and again, didn't he? He did. Yes. More on that More later. On that later. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I suppose when it comes to his son, Bersha, I mean, there's a, t- a bit of a resemblance, but um, it is very interesting to see the kind of father-son divide and how a much less sympathetic character, especially because he decides to side with the Federation, um, you know, he's actually making a lot of sense when he's talking about you know, this this ridiculous vow and electroshock therapy and propaganda and everything. Um, and yet when, un- unbeknownst to Tarrant and Dana, um, Howard effectively orders for his son's execution there and then, uh, he panics immediately for all of two seconds before he's actually killed. I mean, as I was saying before, it's there's a really good story to be told there with that those ideas and those concepts and those characters and what we actually get just sort of feels a little bit undercooked. Mm. I'm just wondering... I mean, I'm, I'm, I know you could pad a story out like that out for, for an entire episode, but you just wonder to what extent... Howard would kind of be pushed, you know, would he show flashes of anger if he was constantly being undermined by one of the Liberator crew? Like, you know, where he's... Well, I suppose it'd be sort of similar to power play in so far that you're, you're presented with this world which seems sort of quite nice and perfect. Yeah. And then you eventually discover, you know, the dark secret underneath it. Mm, yeah. And obviously, seeing as they've already done that, with the previous episodes, <laughs> it's going to be a bit difficult for them to do straight away. Yeah. But I mean, I know we've talked about some scripts in the past feeling like sort of two ideas or two scripts sort of thrown together, mm. and this doesn't really feel like that. But it feels like there's a really good sort of B plot going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Which could have been a very good A plot. Uh, oh, absolutely. And, and you sort of sort of feel it's lost, really, because like, it just makes it feel a bit sidelined. Yeah. I mean, it's sidelined for good stuff. Yes. But perhaps it's just a case where they didn't realise how potentially good their B plot really was. I really can't... There, there is just something ultimately unsatisfying about it, and I can't quite put my finger on what it is. I mean, I suppose, like you said, there's a bit of a like, sudden reveal. Oh, yes, by the way, we have a doomsday weapon. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, did I not mention that before? Yeah, I was, sorry, I was a bit busy killing my son. But basically... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, of course, you have that thing. Oh, yes, we put a nuclear bomb at the centre of the planet. Really? How? <laughs> Why? <laughs> What's it in? <laughs> Um, you know, it just one push of this giant red button, and this entire <laughs> planet will explode. He may be a pacifist, but he does have a flair for the dramatic. 
Again, a villain with a self-destructing base. <laughs> he's like the world's nicest Bond villain. <laughs> so at least he's doing it on a matter of principle rather than just the fact that James Bond has just fucked his place up and run off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's still going to be an impressive piece of real estate, even without Bond ruining your plans. <laughs> I mean, this, this is you only live twice material. Absolutely. A gigantic <laughs> hollowed out volcano of death. <laughs> Underwater. <laughs> no, no. The American underwater hollowed out volcano CIA. Oh, bless you. It's a catchphrase mashup. <laughs> None of which were yours. Nope. <laughs> uh. So, uh, what are we thinking of Taras and Dana in their first adventure the, as full members of the crew? I like the fact that they were paired together um, for this because, I mean, it, it gives you an opportunity to kind of suss them out not exactly on their own but as new characters and how they interact and what they think of being kind of interjected into this kind of scenario completely by chance, obviously but, um, I mean, you know, what what they feel about it, what they think about the crew. I mean, granted, most of this has happened off-screen. And um, you essentially get to see what they think for the first time. And um, Tarrant, Kel Surprise, he's a bit arrogant and very uh, self-motivated. Um, <laughs> I, I do like the fact that, obviously, we've only seen them in the costumes they were introduced in up to this point. So Dana has traded in her sort of Roman-style toga and and other jumpsuity type things mm. for a, a different, but you know, different jumpsuits with you know, concealed weapons and Pink all sorts of stuff going on. Whereas Tarrant has dressed as Robin Hood. <laughs> He's found Blake's wardrobe. <laughs> Ooh, puffy sleeves. Ooh, I Bagsy me gets this room. <laughs> Yes. Um, <laughs> fashion aside, because this is Blake Seven. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I do like the fact that they went down. At the same time, I'm a bit surprised they went down because the whole reason that they were on Obsidian in the first place was because in Powerplay it was mentioned there was a rumor that that's where Blake was headed, or where he at least yeah. settled himself. So. Why not send the two people who haven't actually met him? Well, it is because the people on Obsidian, or you know, at least Hower, knew Dana's father, so it kind of makes more sense that Dana would be a good point of contact. Right, Dana, but, you know, why? <laughs> like Dana and Avon. Well, I, I think it's just sort of uh, getting the... It's a way of showing the new crew off, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Really, I mean, yeah. there's there, there's no way you can really explain it acceptably <laughs> in terms of narrative choice, but uh, yeah, it, it's there to showcase the two new crew members and have them do something. And I think it does make a lot of sense because, you know, having introduced these new two new crew members, if they just suddenly became the new space receptionists, mm. we'd, all, we'd all be a bit, what? Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, and... In Venice, they do spend the majority of the episode on Obsidian. 
early on the Liberator for like the, the very end. Um, and there is a danger of Callie being the space receptionist here. Uh, she does jointly operate the teleport with uh, Villa. Um, but it's, no, it's Villa who stays <laughs> on board the whole time. Um, and well, t- when she does try to get Orak to operate the teleport, he essentially tells her it's woman's work. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? <laughs> she's essentially just like screw you <laughs> but uh, speaking about Villa just staying on board the entire time um, the scene he shares with Avon after after uh, the Federation troops have uh, kidnapped Callie and Orak and shot Avon in the arm I mean Villa does essentially Ensure to where uh, Avon's are being fixed, but then he, his response is just to sit down and have a <laughs> effectively just have a, an alcoholic beverage. Well, it, it's adrenaline and soma. Soma, again. yeah. So, but yeah, he he's getting loaded. <laughs> yeah. He's just got the two of them sitting down, going, "Well, that could have gone better." <laughs> I think that's a really nice moment, actually. It is, because... It's just like the, the two of them together, their ship's a bit fucked up. Callie's been ki- kidnapped. The other two are still on the planet. Yeah. But Avon's like, arm's getting better. It's just like, oh, fuck it, you have a drink. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's the sort of thing, because you know deep down Avon and Villa do have a friendship of sorts, but you don't often get to see it because they, they prefer kind of like sniping at each other. So, yeah. so this is one of these nicer moments that we haven't really seen since um, <laughs> since Gambit, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, there's that. Um, uh, I mean, there is like Tarrant's sort of stating at the start of the episode that he doesn't particularly trust Zen, the Liberator, or anybody else on the ship, and and seemingly the the, the feeling is mutual from Villa's point of view. Um, although, um, going just... actually, there's a very interesting line from Villa when um, yeah, Avon sort of says uh, uh, he wouldn't understand something being you know explained to him. That he points out that he might be a grade four ignorant, but he says he actually bought that classification. <laughs> He's actually highly intelligent, and he d- he just didn't want to be a space captain. <laughs> which Avon thinks, yeah, right, you could be a space captain, uh, which kind of puts but him you, in his you place. You can kind of sort of see the point though, because oh yeah, yeah. Villa must be quite intelligent to be able to do what he does. I mean, he does a lot of sophisticated computer lock manipulation and stuff like that. I think he's one of these people who are intelligent but have very little common sense, which is why he can get away with kind of being the idiot at times. I would possibly put forward that maybe his story is true and maybe he does have, you know, IQ-wise, it's probably quite high, but he, being Villa, he didn't want to do anything resembling work. (laughs) And so quite happily sort of bought a lower grade. Because also, I mean, from a thief's point of view, that would mean people would underestimate him as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. If people would think he was like a, you know, a stupid, ignorant, menial worker. Like Avon does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but just going back to um, Tarrant as a ground crew kind of operative, yeah. there are times throughout where you feel he's going to jeopardise the entire thing just through the force of his personality. He is a bit aggressive. 
Yeah. But I kind of like that in terms of it's it's a change from Blake's sort of passive silver spoony mouth <laughs> kind of thing. Well, I mean Blake isn't a pacifist, but he is very no, no, sorry, passive aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, whereas Tarrant doesn't mince his words. Yes, you, you could not accuse him of that. No. And I mean, they as much as reference it when um, he sees the conversation is not going well from his end, so he just turns to Dana and like, "Yeah, why don't you take over? Because I am no diplomat." So. At least he does have the sort of self-awareness to realise that maybe Dana would have a better crack at it. Oh yeah, yeah. Because that's the but thing. He doesn't just sort of pig-headedly soldier on. That's the thing because you think for the most in intelligent thing to do is, as your opening gambit, say, look, this is the daughter of someone you used to work with. That's that's why we need to come here and uh, why we're here. Whereas Tarrant decides to have a bit of a slanging match with Bersha instead. Yeah. <laughs> sort of his way. Still, he's bringing you on the job. Well, exactly. Any more for any more? Uh, no, I, I think I'm pretty much done on my thoughts. Should we go to the feedback? Let's. Right, uh, written feedback from Gareth. He says, on Volcano. Uh, we What we start off with is, let's see what the crew members bring to the table on an away mission and teleport down to the only active volcano in Wales. Sorry, I meant obsidian. <laughs> Uh, Tarrant doesn't trust anyone. I'm sorry, I'm not liking him, r- rather. I get the feeling that this will only grow over time. If the passives, led by Alfred the butler, don't kill him before. Uh, Orak gets a zinger in at Callie, stating that the teleport operation is a menial task best suited to her. <laughs> Makes another cosplay Travis-like appearance. This time, she has set the crew up with the help of Alfred's son, and false rumours of Blake's whereabouts which I get the feeling is going to become an arc for this series. The, oh, there is a rumour of Blake being here series. Is it me? But so far in Blake 7, all neutral people have been the ones you should really worry about. Uh, examples being the Terranostra from Breakdown, actually I think the Terranostra in Shadow, uh, or the high techs in Powerplay. I'm glad we got a reason why the passes were never taken over, although I do question how safe it is storing a nuclear bomb next to a volcano. Uh, underneath. Uh, overall, not a bad episode. I do take his points about the neutrals, though, because um, they do often play that up. Um, you know, because if, if we're going to just lump the Federation as the bad guys, um, and the Liberated crew as the good guys, then neutrals, you'd think, okay, there, there's space to explore here. And there is a line in one of the episodes concerning neutrals that um, just because they're not uh, I, I believe it was from Breakdown so just because they're not uh, with the Federation doesn't mean they might not agree with the Federation yeah. so to speak and then we saw screen villain Julian Glover and we're like <laughs> nah this isn't going to end well no you kind of get the feeling that a lot of these neutral planets, I mean, like the high techs and people like that, are 
they haven't been conquered for a reason. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> and in the case of this episode, because there's a gigantic nuclear device under the volcano. Yes. Well, should we go to the uh, the good Reverend Org right. and Anne Marie? Yes. They ha- they have some thoughts on volcano. Let's hear them. It's Volcano, starring Alfred Pennyworth. <laughs> and lots of stock shots of Mount Etna. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, and a robot with flashing blue testicles. Oh, yeah, what was that about? <laughs> the blue bollock robot. <laughs> oh, that was disturbing. If he didn't talk, that would have been even more disturbing. You come out with a voice like C-3PO, so those slashing bollocks. Go oh, on. oh, dear. <laughs> it's seen Star Wars. I know what we need. <laughs> oh, we can no. do that on our budget. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, don't be a leotard. <laughs> and it was the choice of two. If they'd had five <laughs> flashing lights, yeah. it would not have been anything like as bad. Could have been worse. Could have been a big one, long one. In the yeah, middle. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yes, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> um, but did you have... see the eye nose configuration on the robot? Because that was just as bad. No, I, I, I was too distracted by the bollocks. Ah, oh, okay. The crew are looking for a base. Why? We never know. quite adequately explain what the plan is here. I mean, you know, we've got the crew back together again. This is kind of my problem with the third season. It, it sort of starts out quite well, but it's a bit directionless at the best of times. And this one's a, out of nowhere. They suddenly need a base with no reason given. Well, no, because the Federation can't be pursuing them anymore because the Federation is there. I think they have their hands tied, although Servalander manages to appear yet again. I mean, this is a very busy president. She obviously gets around the galaxy a lot, doesn't she? Blimey. She's got her latest Travis replacement. Was his name Maury? I don't know. There's one... Gives her a bit of lip, doesn't he? He's lucky to get away with that. She's clearly short of staff. Yeah. It's either that or it's his Chewbacca bandolier that's given him a bit of bravado. Ah! But then, having said that, him giving her a bit of lip fits with her reduced status yeah. now that the Federation is not what it once was. Well, she's, you know, presumably there are far less Federation troopers around, so they feel they can behave like they want to, I don't know. Uh, she just, it just makes me think of Super Ted. If something's gone wrong, it must be Texas Pete. I must, <laughs> it must be Serverland. Yes. That's really a reference that Ian, Ian is going to get, get, isn't he? I mean, I'm sure he's well-versed in Super Ted. Sorry. <laughs> You'll have to Google it, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's just what it made me think of. Must be Texas Pete. Yeah. Must be Serverland. As per usual, plenty of chance to kill the good guys, but the, the Federation troopers never take advantage of it. They're, they're right at the beginning, they're given orders to kill everybody. da 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 with an evil twirling of Serverland's moustache if she had one. But yeah. then all they do is tie him up a bit. I know. <laughs> and use dog collars as gags, which was really quite disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not even well tied up. It looks like they're being tied up with skipping ropes. Uh, it's sad, isn't it? Yes. But the worst thing about this episode, the thing that you said before it started, it was like, oh, this is the one that's got the pacifists that kill people. Yeah. Because no, exactly, he kills his own son. Yes. I, I got, are you supposed to be a pacifist? Excuse me, but if you're not a pacifist, then I'm killing you. There's an interesting approach to life. Oh, <laughs> it was just like, oh, please. Doesn't so, work. Yeah, it's, it's not a great episode. 
No. But it's better than the next one, but we won't say anything about that. <laughs> well, yeah, we decide... Well, the thing... No, we will say one thing, because it's not spoilerific or anything like that, okay? The next episode came along, and I thought, ooh, this could be one of two episodes. When I realised which one of the two it was, because I thought it might have been a, a different one, and I think we've yet to come, we started playing words with friends. <laughs> there we go. So there you are. Hey-ho! Two much better ones to come along later. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, guys. Bye. 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 <laughs> so, Super Dad. I feel slighted. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just because I haven't seen Spock's brain or that episode of Star Trek that Blake Seven deliberately ripped off. Um, <laughs> Arena. Uh, you know, children's TV is completely different because I I had like compilation videos of all sorts of children's TV that was technically before my time, but you know it's still for kids, so it's it gets recycled. You know, my, my mum had had us watch Watch with Mother because she used to watch that when she was a child. So yeah, yeah. you know, you don't come. At me with, like, jokes about Andy Pandy or Muffin the Mule. <laughs> or the wooden tops. I know what you're talking about. I remember Super Ted. Yeah. Texas Dry Bones. <laughs> it was a camp skeleton. There was a, a, a spotty character. that was voiced by John Pertwee. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, don't come at me with your Super Ted's. Derek Griffiths, I believe. Derek Griffiths, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah Derek from, Griffiths. From Play School. Yes, yeah, the, 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 can't He was breathe. also the voice of Bob and Corvax from the Muzzy Language videos put on by the BBC. Yeah, okay. Really, now, stop talking. Say please. <laughs> oh, I had <laughs> <laughs> stopped talking. <laughs> Fool. <laughs> Right, okay. calm yourself, really. Right. What else did they say? Other than a minute to <laughs> well, about talking I, about I, robot testicles. I heard them mention this on Twitter, and I looked at it and thought, like, well, kind of. I, I think that's a bit of a uh, Warshack test there. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> if, if, if you want to see flashing blue testicles, that's what you'll see. And yeah. I, I just didn't look. Yeah. Well, I I only ended up looking because I'd heard them mention it on. Well, I said heard, saw them mention it on Twitter. But yeah, they've got like a low slug belt thing with two sort of glowing discs on it. <laughs> when you put it like that, it sounds funny. Yes. <laughs> well, I've, I've, I just well, I thought it was a slightly better episode than they were giving it credit for. Well, yeah. Well, it's a matter of taste, isn't it? <laughs> okay. I mean, to be fair, we've just spent better part of an hour eulogising about what. <laughs> That's his trick. That's his trick. What, what a good episode it was. So, okay. Well, well, in that case, if you're so desperate to get onto it, I'm, I'm desperate to get out of the way. <laughs> Let's steam forward to Dawn of the Gods. Well, that's not fair. I'm twenty thousand credits down. Come on, Villa, pay up. Why don't I ever win? Being a born loser may have something to do with it. And a bad one at that. Rule 10. A player may miss two turns while on a penal colony planet. 
On his third turn, he must pay a 10,000 credit fine and leave the colony. Now's your chance to come out fighting, Villa. Oh, sure. On a miserable little space shuttle while he's got an entire battle fleet waiting for me. One cruiser, if you check. I didn't consider you worth a battle fleet. Even if I got past it, where could I go? Come and stay at my hotel in Space City, Villa. Only 5,000 credits per night, with all your favourite extras thrown in. I might as well give up. Don't you always? What's the matter, Tarrant? I'm getting a 005 course deflection. What about the game? What was the deviation the first time? Very little, 002. Even a course deflection of 001 is significant if it hasn't been programmed by the navigation computers, which it hasn't. Auron is still the reference point according to this. What about the game? Zen, why have we had three course deflections that we've had to correct manually? Analysis of navigation and main drive control computers is proceeding. Not very helpful. But significant. Usually Zen can check all systems in milliseconds. The fact that he is taking longer suggests that tests are being carried out right down to component level. Villa, Cali, Dana. A full manual check on all systems, weapons, force wall, everything. Information. Analysis at all function levels indicates that all systems are functioning normally. Wonderful. There's nothing wrong with the Liberator, therefore we must have imagined those alarms going off. Orak, a small problem for you. What is the possibility of a directional control fault arising on the Liberator without Zen knowing about it? The chances are that had the game continued as it should have done, I would have won control of the galaxy on a probability of 10,450 to 1. Orak, it was only a game. Orak with delusions of grandeur and Zen unable to control the ship. I'd say we've a lot of little problems on our hands. Course deflection is 005. Speed standard by 5 and increasing. I'd say we have one large problem on our hands. Right. Dawn of the Gods. Well, this episode opens with the crew and Orak playing Space Monopoly. Yes, they're playing Space Monopoly. They're, yep. they're going to the point of discussing the rules of Space Monopoly. And, and oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, Orak's winning... Because, yep. you know, he's a supercomputer. Why so would you going... play against Orak if he's a supercomputer? Well, I'm assuming you still have to roll a dice or something. Yeah. Space dice. Yeah, does he have eyes? Can he see what's going on? I don't know. Anyway, the ship keeps making minor course corrections, which Tarrant has to keep correcting manually. Avon says this is a problem because normally the navigational computers would pick it up straight away, so the fact that it keeps happening means that something is up. Uh, Zen says all the systems are normal. They do a check themselves. All the systems are normal, and Tarrant asks Orak what the problem is and whether like, Zen wouldn't be able to spot it, and Orak says that the Liberator is behaving normally. No, he isn't. He's still talking about the bloody game. Oh yes, he, he does. He, Orak is complaining that they've stopped playing the game, and he wants to play the game again. You know, because in this episode, Orak is a prick. Yeah. So, Tarrant works out that the ship is being pulled, which is why the course keeps constantly changing, and he reckons that they must be caught in some sort of tractor beam. So he has the area scanned for potential ships that could be using a tractor beam. There's nothing in the area. Uh, the ship is supposed to be on its way to Auron. And so, Tra uh, Travis, 
<laughs> Tarrant suggests that maybe the people of Auron are involved. Does someone miss Travis? <laughs> Dana suggests that maybe they have telekinetic ability that she doesn't know about, and maybe they're using mind powers and stuff. But it turns out that they're heading for somewhere called Sector 12, which is sort of a uh, Bermuda Triangle in space. Lots of Federation uh, survey ships got sent out there and never came back. Uh, Avon decides that what they need to do, instead of trying to sort of fight against the force that's put in the ship, they need to stop everything and just sort of go with the flow so they can work out exactly what kind of force is pulling the ship and then they can work out how to get free. Uh, It turns out the ship's being pulled by a black hole. And it turns out that the ship has been uh, commandeered by Aurak because he spotted this black hole, and it's very unusual because it's not emitting any X-ray radiation. And because Aurak decided that this represented an unacceptable gap in his knowledge, took over the controls of the Liberator and pointed it at a black hole. (sighs) Yeah. The, The Liberator gets caught in the pull of the black hole, and everything goes a bit wibbly. Uh, Avon decides it's um, that the ship's screwed, so starts trying to put on a spacesuit and <laughs> try to escape. Tarrant stops him, says they they all go together or not at all. Then Avon and Tarrant have a bit of an exchange, which I did quite enjoy. Uh, Orak assumes control of the ship to the point where uh, all orders have to be ver. Zen has to verify all orders with Orak before carrying them out. Uh... Much to much to Zen's embarrassment. Callie starts being um, influenced by a telepathic being. She's unconscious. Yes, we're Not doing the... another Callie influenced by a telepathic being plot, people. Oh, no. Yeah. And the telepathic being she's being influenced by is called a Tharn, who's a figure from Auron stories. Do you remember the last time there was a story where Callie was being influenced telepathically by someone from Auron Legends and Stories? Yeah, I I couldn't I couldn't physically write any notes about that episode because I was just utterly bewildered. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> Keep going. They they deduce that the Liberator is no longer in space after passing through the black hole. It's just like a black void, and because of it, a black void, Tarrant decides to shoot at it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so they. They fire the blasters, but they're getting hit by their own blasts. So, yeah, they decide that they need to go outside and see what's going on, but the teleport receptors on the outside of the ship have been damaged, so they need somebody to go outside and fix them. That person, it turns out, is Villa, because the hatches on the outside are stuck, and they need somebody to get through it. Villa gets in full spacesuit, goes outside, and it turns out that not only is there gravity, but they are actually inside what appears to be a cavern. The Cavern Club in Liverpool, to be precise. Yes. Well, it just, well, it just looks indoor. <laughs> well, yeah, it is very much indoor. <laughs> yeah. uh, Villa has a bit of a wander around, and he finds sort of bits of space debris and asteroids, There's like, like rock fragments and stuff. He grabs a couple of samples, and then something comes towards him with flashy lights, and he gets all hypnotised by it. Uh, it just keeps going, It's beautiful, so beautiful! Uh, Callie telepathically influences Villa's mind to break the telepathic hold on him. Villa legs it, but his uh, air tube gets disconnected from his spacesuit and starts to depressurise. The uh, machine or whatever it is drives off, 
not, but not before attacking the Liberator for a bit and knocking out one of their scanners. Uh, they detect Villa's body outside and they assume he must be dead. Tarrant volunteers to go outside to bring the body back in. Only it turns out Villa isn't dead at all and there's actually an atmosphere where they are. Uh, they analyse the space debris and they find out it's been stripped of all Herculaneum. Herculaneum is the strongest metal in the universe and Herculaneum contains the majority of the Liberator's outer shell, which is one of the reasons why the Liberator is such a tough ship and so impervious to damage. So Villa, Cali, Avon and Tarrant decide to go outside and see what's going on. Uh, they decide to take with them one of, one of the neutron blasters from the Liberator, apparently. <coughs> They've just set it up as a cannon. <laughs> yep. But a machine turns up, painted up like a piranha, <laughs> neutralises the blaster, <laughs> and then they are greeted by what can only be described <laughs> as an unholy union between Liberace and Mandrake the Magician from Defenders of the Earth. The mass Oh, Jesus. Good God. Uh, he welcomes them to Crandor. <laughs> I love that sentence. <laughs> he d he introduces himself as the Caliph of Ke of Crandor, and that he serves the Great Tharn, the Great Tharn who up to this point has been telepathically sending Cali heavy breathing, dirty phone calls. Oh boy! About how he wants to rule the universe with her. Yes. <laughs> Hair bonding, I believe. The Caliph says that they want, he wants to give them a good price for the Herculaneum in the Liberator, and the price he offers is double slave rations until the debt is paid. <laughs> yes, uh, Tarrant says they're not going anywhere. The Caliph, with his wacky cane, <laughs> turns out to be some sort of pain stick, <laughs> which sort of uh, tortures Tarrant for a bit. Uh, he then magically appears on the Liberator out of nowhere, but Taylor's just on the ship and he just pops up behind her. Yeah. And he goes, Are you Cali? For some reason, he didn't ask Cali if she was Cali when they were outside. He goes into the Liberator and asks Dana if she's Cali. Yeah. It's like, I mean, for God's sake, he just asked Cali to save himself the walk. But uh, he uses his, uh, his pain stick thing, has like a lie detector built in, so if you tell a lie, you get sort of dizzying pain. So Dana says, No, that she's, uh, she's Dana and Cali's outside. <laughs> Dickhead. <laughs> and it says the Great Tharn can also sense the presence of somebody else called Aurak. And you know, he wants to know where Aurak is. Dana says that there is no person by that name on the Liberator. And the, the lie detector detects that she isn't lying. Because there isn't. <laughs> <laughs> so they all get locked up in a big prison. And Callie uh, tells the story of Tharn, which is a uh, Tharn is an Auron myth. It says that there were there were seven gods who descended on Auron, and there was just sort of one man and one woman. They returned a million years later and gave great gifts to the people of Auron, new crops, and the power of telepathy was promised. But there was one god called Tharn, who was jealous and thought the people of Auron would eventually rise and conquer the gods themselves. And in a disagreement, he killed another god. And he was uh, sent beyond time and space. He swore vengeance and that he would become master of the universe. <laughs> <laughs>
Ride <laughs> Battle Cat and fight Skeletor. Yeah, he man. <laughs> I'm, I'm, that's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I have an internet friend who does it even better. Ah. Uh, so Callie is taken to see Tharn and laid out on a porn star's rug. <laughs> God. <laughs> That's not creepy at all. Uh, Terence and Avon are introduced to uh, someone called uh, Gruff, who for some reason is dressed like a casino croupier. <laughs> uh, Gruff is the head engineer, the head technician, sorry. And he used to be from a Federation survey ship. Uh, the Caliph cross examines Tarrant about Orak, and he asks Tarrant to describe Orak. He says Orak is about is a couple of feet high and doesn't have any hair. He's not wrong. So basically, he's he's described Orak as a bald dwarf. <laughs> so uh, Zed and Orak sort of decide to sort of exchange information and sort of uh, potter away doing whatever it is computers do. Uh, Avon and Tarrant are given some calculations to do using, of all things, a graphite writing stick. Because pencils are apparently museum pieces. So the Federation destroyed all the churches, but apparently the Museum of Pencils survived. Oh, it's good to know Cumbria is still fine. <laughs> Uh, Groff explains that the Great Tharn has um, oh, what's it called? It's like an energy displacement thingy. Yeah, energy isolator. Sorry. Yeah, he has an he has an energy isolator which stops all technology but his from working. Luddite. And, yes, and he has created uh, something called a gravity manipulator, and it, it uses Herculaneum to produce energy for the gravity manipulator. But in order to make the gravity the gravity manipulator more powerful, they need to complete all these calculations. So Terence and Avon are set to work doing calculating things. Meanwhile, uh, Tharn continues his seduction of Callie. Because basically, Tharn's a bit lonely. <laughs> There's a reason and, for uh, that. He, yep, and, he, and he wants to share the universe with Callie. He's going to use the gravity manipulator to basically sort of move things around and you know, bend the earth to his will. Not bend the earth, I bend the universe, sorry, to his will. And, yeah, and he wants Callie to willingly join him. Uh, on board the Liberator, there's a couple of guys trying to dismantle it, and probably in probably about the one nice bit about this episode, there's a callback to Space 4, because the same automatic defence system which Blake, Avon, and Jenna encountered yep. in Space 4 yep. takes out these technicians. Yep. Despite Orak repeatedly warning them, don't go near that large flashing thing, it's going to kill you. <laughs> the Caliph gets a bit obsessed with finding Orak and trying to find out what weapons he's got that could possibly work in the face of uh, Thun's energy switcher offer. <laughs> uh, Groff and Avon and Tarrant discuss the gravity manipulator and they work out that if they reverse the gravity manipulator, it would throw the Liberator back out into normal space, but it would destroy Crandor. Callie accepts Tharn's offer, but convinces him to turn off the energy isolator, and then constantly go, then goes postal with a gun, then Tarrant and Avon kill a bunch of guards, 
Groff could come with them, decides not to, he'd rather stay there and turn <laughs> off the gravity manipulator and die. You idiots! <laughs> um, Callie finds Tharn and, in a fantastic twist of irony, turns out to be a bald midget. Hey! Oh! oh. and the Caliph have a bit of a dust-up. They get back on the ship. They escape. It turns out Tharn escapes in a, in a little ship of his own. Uh, Callie says she didn't see what Tharn looked like. Doesn't know. Probably because she was too fucking embarrassed. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Crandall gets destroyed and the Liberator goes off to let Groff's, Groff's family know that he died a knobhead. Episode ends. Didn't... Mr. Wilson, your thoughts on this? Oh dear God. Um, not good. Um, really not very good. <laughs> Well, yeah, the fact that it shares lots of similarities with, you know, the web, which is shit. <laughs> I think that's the Apparently, main similarity. Yeah. Hmm? That yeah. is the main similarity. <laughs> it is the main similarity, you're quite right. <laughs> yeah, oh, just why, really? I mean, this is a web tribute episode, practically. <laughs> Pretty much. I will say it does. The only way it scores over the web is it doesn't immediately show you how crap the um, the final villain is in the first thirty seconds of the program. Yeah, it has the good sense to leave it right until the end. Yeah, and instead has a mincing Mad Hatter like with his Willy Wonka gates just acts on his behalf. You know what? I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna make. Full use of our explicit rating here. Good. The, the Caliph's a cunt. He's a top hat wearing, swaggering, <laughs> foppish cunt. <laughs> Let it all <Really>? out. <laughs> I mean, what is that? He's just. What? <laughs> and he's magic, Dave. Oh. He can appear just like was, that. Liberace was watching that episode thinking, blimey, that's a bit much, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's a bit flamboyant. <laughs> I mean, Liberace's turning Batman was more subdued than uh, the Caliph. Oh, just... just oh. Um, like I said, there, there is one decent scene in there, and that is the reappearance of the, uh, the Liberator's defence system. Oh, not the board game. Right, um, <laughs> oh, Space Monopoly! What? Oh, just, what the hell? So, and the thing is, let's the guy who's written this has clearly dreamt up the rules of Space Monopoly, and he's so pleased with himself that he's invented the rules of Space Monopoly, he has the characters talk to each other about the rules of Space Monopoly. Yeah, I mean, I mean I've mean, i got the Leicestershire edition, and I think that's a bit niche, but <laughs> Space Monopoly... And the thing is, it's not even an aside, it's not like... They're just playing it casually, and then suddenly Zen says something like, warning, something's happening. So I, mean, can... I, mean, I mean, that has happened in another episode. I can't remember which episode began with it, but there was uh, Jenna and Avon playing that um, sort of chess-style game. Yes. And that, it... well, yeah, 
as you say, that was a nice little. They just happened to be doing that on the bridge. Then says warning and everything. Yeah. But no, we're. I've invented space monopoly. I, the writer, whose name temporarily escapes me. I'm, I'm going to name and shame this bastard. I've got it here. I, James Follett. <laughs> have invented Space Monopoly, and I want you all to know about it. So the opening ten minutes is going to be a discussion of Space Monopoly, and Orak is going to not want to take part in the plot, because he wants to play Space Monopoly. Fuck you, Space Monopoly. Fuck you. Have you actually uh, clicked on the link for the guy? No. He's like, he's a novelist. He's written... Rosen? Bloody hell. He, he's Rosen. I, I, you know, you know, I, I bet he has Rosen books. <laughs> I could have been the Rosen of this episode with this guy. <laughs> Grammar? Jesus. Uh, the the name means... does ring a bell, actually. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I, I'm not a big reader nowadays. Uh, so I don't believe I've come across him, but uh, it's just like his entire bibliography is just like novels and two episodes of Blake 7. Oh god, he's done another one? Yeah, he, he comes back. Oh shit. I don't know which one, and I don't want to know. But, um... Well, it is on the entry, but... I'll, I'll tell you what, though. I bet it's me who has got a fucking synopsis. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, there is no reason for them to spend a good four minutes talking about Space Monopoly. From when it first comes on screen till the very last time it gets mentioned. Just, what the hell? Imagine if you started an episode of, I don't know, The Next Generation with Picard and Data playing Yahtzee. Or Jenga. Or... Well, well, they had sort of three-dimensional chess. But nobody sits there and discusses the rules of three-dimensional <laughs> chess. They're just playing three-dimensional chess. Yeah. And I think this leads into my most hated thing about this episode. Which is? Orak. Oh, God, he's such a bellend in this episode. This is everything that I was really frightened Orak would become. Like, back yeah. right at the end of series one. And with all credit to the show, I mean, okay, he he's a bit high and mighty in redemption. Whereas, like... Oh, I blew up that ship because I didn't want to be wrong. Um, and then afterwards, he's just like kind of aloof, or at least just kind of talks back to people. But in this one, what the hell happened to him? Hit, I can't hit. help but think that James Follett had seen some canine on Doctor Who, because uh, that's kind of how he's written, sort of a, a slightly more prissy version of. I mean, canine's pretty prissy as it is. What a more prissy version of canine. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I cannot take orders now. Why not? Because you have to get them directly through me. Or something like, ah, no, no more talking. I must go back to making observations or something like that. Yeah, it's just, oh, God. For God's sake. Uh, I mean, there's even a scene where Orak and Zen just chat to each other. And I, yeah, it, and, and then Orak goes, well, we no longer need to talk to each other in verbal language, we shall just co communicate in machine code. Oh, great, thanks. But it, they never discuss what they're talking about, you know? 
it's not like the two of them have been planning something or anything. <laughs> that scene has got no reason to be in there other than to say, "Why we're computers? Why are we talking to each other in English?" <laughs> two legs bad, no legs good. <laughs> Oh, just fuck this baby chest episode. It it is it is seriously rivaling the web. Oh, but I t- I tell you what, let's just because I I kind of interrupted the good bits. So why don't right. we just go back and talk about that, and then just like pick on lesser problems. Okay, okay. Uh, which ironically involves the two computers. <laughs> <laughs> and which we pretty and pretty much there isn't very much to say. It's a callback to space. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's exactly the same effect. It works in the same way, and it kills them off. And, it, and it's just a nice callback that once again the ship's been left abandoned. So once again the automatic defences are up. That's it, really. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice callback. What is it about episodes that centre around Callie that is so often terrible? Oh, well, it, it's just the... Tally's gets telepathically influenced by Space Alien. Again. <laughs> and I'll tell you now, it's not the last time we're going to see this plot thread show up this series. Oh. Well, yeah, because it, it happens at least once a series, but twice. There's at least one other episode this series, I know for a fact, is Callie gets possessed by telepathic being. Again. It's not Tharn, is it? Hmm? It's not Tharn... Oh, no, it's, it's, it's not Tharn coming back, no. Because that's, that's another thing. Okay. They set Tharn up as a recurring villain. Whether he, oh. whether he does or not, that's for you to know and me to find out. But the fact is, there are so many other potential secondary villains that this show could have had by now. Because obviously there's Serverland, and there was Travis, although he was more of a kind of extension to Serverland. And for an episode, you had the system, and you've had so many great guest villains, from going all the way back to no, the very beginning. You've got Virgil Tracy in the way back. <laughs> you've got, um, I'll make sure I get this right, Raker, yes? Yeah, not Riker. Riker, yeah, Riker in Spaceful, and yeah, of course you have Brian Blessed in Sickness Alpha. Yes, and you know plenty more great. I mean, Carnell, he was a villain, technically. Not that you want to hear that. Well, no, I mean he he is a villain, but I mean in terms of villains, he doesn't really interact with anybody but Serverland and that dude in Serverland's office. Uh, that's that's fair enough. And you know, we had, more recently we had Proveen from Countdown. Yeah, no, we have had some really good villains, and good villains who could have been good recurring villains, and are killed off. And but no, and yeah, the bald midget lives to fight another day. Yeah, Tharn must live. Oh, the the Wizard of Oz character. And, just, you know, and, oh, and he's awful. Is it, he is just a rapey Wizard of Oz. <laughs> with some telepathic power. You know, I mean, obviously, the, the pair bonding episode was, 
very kind of rapey and somewhat disturbing. But, you know, this one... Oh, just, yeah. You have... Yeah, he actually does the, um, almost does the Wizard of Oz thing. They're like, ignore the man behind the curtain. <laughs> is it, it? He is the Wizard of Oz. Oh. Pretty much. And then, I mean... I mean, certain bits of it seem like they're stolen from um, the Three Doctors, which is one of... Well, yes, go, go through a black hole and, I mean, they, 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 Avon speculates they might be in the, an antimatter universe. Yeah. They're not. They're in a cave. <laughs> they're in a bubble. Yeah. Yeah. And just like, the whole thing, like, oh, a graphite writing stick. <laughs> so, oh, yes, because we're in the future. Oh. Just and yeah, you know, if graphite writing sticks are only available in museums, if they're inside a black hole, where the fuck did they find the staples? <laughs> where do you find a stationer's in the middle of a black hole? Because it's got paper as well. Can can I just put us aside for a tangent, just so we don't die of anger? I believe it's possible. By all means, by all means. One of my favourite adverts ever is a Staples advert. Right. Um, and it was played around August-September time, because they were, like, really promoting, like, a, a big back-to-school drive. Right. After, like... And the advert features um, a father, like, skipping merrily around the store, finding uh, school equipment for his two crestfallen-looking children. <laughs> as, as the new term starts with. And playing above it is It's the most wonderful time oh, of the year. <laughs> I thought that that effort has stayed with me however many years ago it's been. <laughs> uh, well, clearly Tharn saw that and thought, brilliant, I'll get myself some pencils. <laughs> Was not even pens? Were pens too technologically advanced? Clearly, I mean, a biro. How do they work? And they got like other people queuing up to use the, the great pencil sharpener of Tharn. <laughs> you're like, you're like the old school pencil sharpeners with the big rotating handle. Yep, yep, yeah, yeah. There's probably one of those somewhere. That's probably something else that the the cunt caliph sticks does as well. <laughs> Paint stick and pencil sharpener. Stick it in the end. I did like um, the antagonism between Caliph and um, Tarrant. Yeah. Because Tarrant, you know, he ultimately marks himself out as the kind of antagonizer of. Uh... <laughs> I mean, and granted, I mean, it is something that Blake would have done. Slight, yeah. with sl- a degree less arrogance. Only a degree. But I mean, Tarrant very much wants to be in, ch- in charge of any given situation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Especially... I mean, as soon as the Caliph shows up, he's like, it's Tarrant who's the one who's doing the talking. Whereas Avon is is actually kind of just like observing rather quietly what's going on. Well, I, I kind of think Avon's quite happy to use Tarrant as a bit of a lightning rod. <laughs> yes. Look, here's a random bloke who's come to cause us harm. Let's see what he's really capable of. Obviously, I'll just stand here and let Tarrant nag him for a bit and then see what he does. <laughs> and attract an actual lightning rod. 
So that's the thing, because Kelly from there on in just picks on Taron the entire time. Um, I also like the way the crew kind of got around having to reveal where Orak was. Well, yeah, because I mean, they weren't lying. No. They just weren't being entirely truthful. They, they could have been more helpful at that way. Oh, God, I forgot the comedy chase with the piranha robot. No, you didn't. You mentioned this in your synopsis. I, 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 I mentioned that there was a piranha robot. I didn't mention that when it comes in... Oh, yes. It, it, then, <laughs> it then proceeds to chase them all around the bits. Yeah. I mean, seriously, they should, they should, somebody should get hold of that, speed it up, and put the Benny Hill theme tune over the top of it. Oh, uh, no, we, well, we've had this already with um, Jerrock and, and uh, Travis. Oh. But... Just... I'll have a slight tangent. Um, the, the, the piranha robot thing, it kind of, and it does connect to another part of this episode. Um, it very much reminded me of Dr. No, in that, um, one of the ways that the titular character of, uh, Dr. No, uh, kept what, people Dr. Away. No? Yes, Dr. No. <laughs> D-R-N-O. No. <laughs> um, he, uh, well, he kept uh, locals away from uh, his uh, secret base by employing a, a kind of mechanical uh, device uh, and like planted rumours that it was uh, haunted by a dragon. Uh, so Bond goes there anyway with Honey Rider and uh, Quarrel, who uh, who I um, used to inaugurate the Countdown of Death feature. Yeah. Um, because essentially he's he's terrified of the dragon and very superstitious. And when they actually see the supposed dragon, it turns out to be this robot with flamethrowers. But essentially, Bond keeps hiding with Honey Rider the entire time, letting Quarrel kind of <laughs> go out in front. And he's so paralysed with fear uh, that he dies. And yeah. you can see it coming. <laughs> A fair mile off. As you can in this episode with Groff. Who's, yes. Because here's the thing. Avon and Terence said, well, you've been um, a very uh, faithful ally to us throughout our time here. Um, you've told us you have a wife, you have a, two children who you've loved and, uh, and everything like that. We have this super powerful ship. And if we can put this plan into motion, we will break free. And as as you know, it's one of the most powerful ships in the entire universe. It'll take us next to no time to reunite with you with your family. Groff's response is, "No, it's all right. I'll stay here." Uh, just tell- it reminded me a lot of uh, Michael Rosen. Michael Rosen, <laughs> yeah, yeah, from Redemption. Absolutely, absolutely. Come with us. Don't worry. I'll stay here and get shot. Just. And the icing on the cake is, um, please let them know that I was thinking of them all of the time. So come with us and tell them, you idiot! Exactly! Can you imagine Avon delivering that news? <laughs> of all the people to commiserate you on a dead relative. Yeah. Avon, Avon and Tarrant show up at your doorstep <laughs> to try and commiserate with you on the death of a loved one. We have some bad news. He's dead. <laughs> essentially. <laughs> I, I, I've got nothing else to add. 
Really? I know, I took so few notes on this. And what I, I had to take loads because I had to synopsize the damn thing, but otherwise it would have just been like a just a stream of abuse. Yeah. It's been pretty much my review. Yeah. It's it's terrible. Really is. It might be the new web. It might well be the new web. Yeah. I have to sleep on that one. I may have to watch the web again. Well, uh, purely for comparison purposes, <laughs> which makes me hate Dawn of the Gods even more. Cause it's going to make me have to go watch the web. Uh, I, I'm loath to change a meme. Well, we'll just tack it on the end. <laughs> the web, the web, and Dawn of the Gods, which are shit. Uh, the other day I was uh, watching the web, which is shit, like Dawn of the Gods. Yeah, you go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm done with this one. Yeah, no, me too. Absolutely, one and truly done. I'm sorry for anybody who was expecting a more in-depth analysis of Dawn of the Gods, and instead just got me and Ian shouting at it. But shouting Scunthorpe. Yes, it's it, it's awful. I, I, if anything, I think just the fact that we actually got a decent review out of the web, <laughs> <laughs> we, we can't bring ourselves to say anything interesting about Dawn of the Gods. You remember, I liked half of the web. Hmm. I, I, I kind of agreed with you. Yeah. So I, I think it's official. Dawn of the Gods, worse than the web. Wow. It happened. Shit. No, Dawn of the Gods. <laughs> <laughs> well, should we clear the uh, palate of the bitter taste in our mouth with a bit of who count? You can do that, I'll just have another sip of beer. Damn you. <laughs> Let's bring on the who count! For Volcano, we have Michael Goff, the legend Michael Goff, yep. who played Hauer, was the Celestial Toymaker in the Celestial Toymaker, and Counselor Hedin in the Ark of Infinity. Uh, ben Howard, who played Mori, was Hinks in The Green Death. Good name. Uh, Karen Birch, who was a Pyroan. Here we go. Was was a girl technician in Day of the Daleks, <laughs> and was woman watching show in Snake Dance. <laughs> Snake Dance has the best extras <laughs> credits ever. Woman watching show. <laughs> Wonderful. The fa- the fantastically named Rodney Cardiff, <laughs> who who played a commando played an Imperial Draconian guard in Frontier in Space and the return of a familiar face Mr. Barry Summerford hey! who played a commando whose uh, Doctor Who credits we've gone over extensively in the past but we now all know him as the steaming audience <laughs> member from the Sunmakers damn right <laughs> So that brings us a who count for Volcano of five. Good, good. For Dawn of the Cunts. Sorry, Dawn of the Gods. Language. 
<laughs> it's got all Black Dog Podcast. Yeah, hasn't it just? <laughs> With good reason. The B stands for bollocks. <laughs> That's not to mention Jim Moon's feature. Indeed. Uh, Terry Scully, who played Groff, played Fusion in The Seeds of Death. Marcus Powell, who played the Tharn, was a prisoner in Destiny of the Daleks, and appropriately played a Decima <laughs> in the web. <laughs> which is shit, but not quite as shit as Dawn of the Gods. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, what, what a career that guy has. Yep. Uh, Steve Ismay, who played a guard was, in short order, a BBC3 crew member on The Demons, a gorilla in Day of the Daleks, a presidential guard in Frontier in Space, a unit soldier in The Time Warrior, an Exelon in Death to the Daleks, a guard in The Monster of Peladon, and a guard in The Deadly Assassin. Can you just repeat that first credit again? BBC3 crew... Yeah, uh, Doctor Who predicted the existence of BBC3. Oh, uh, God. In, in, in The Demons... There is a uh, documentary program about the opening of a barrow, and it's and it's on BBC Three. But could they have predicted the sheer horror of BBC Three? But to be fair, it was more like a BBC Four documentary. They, they, obviously, there was no way they could have predicted two pints of lager on a packet of crisps. <laughs> Who could? Exactly. Uh, David Melbourne. In the future, a... there will be this man called Will Meller. <laughs> Whose sole income will be from showing up on BBC Three in a vest. <laughs> anyway, yes, what David a, Melbourne. What a career that guy's had. David Melbourne! <laughs> who was a tech. Was a soldier in the War Games. He was various different soldiers in the War Games. And a unit guard in Day of the Daleks. Uh, a familiar face of the past, Mr. James Muir, who was a monster. Right. Played a Krog in Sharda. Keith Nordish, who was a salvage man, was a Thal in Genesis of the Daleks and a peasant in the Mask of Mandragora. Mm -hmm. uh, Kevin O'Brien, who was a tech, played a citizen in Full Circle. And our good friend... Mr. Barry Summerford hey! <laughs> played a monster and we all know that he is was and always shall be to this podcast a steaming audience <laughs> member it only gets funnier <laughs> we should try to find Barry Summerford <laughs> we need to interview Barry Summerford okay <laughs> if you say so Bring me Barry Summerford. <laughs> Bring me the head of Barry <laughs> <laughs> No, no, that's not an official sanctioned order no, no. from this podcast. No. I don't want someone getting the wrong end of the stick and hunting down the head of Barry <laughs> Summerford. And that gives us a who count of nine. So, Mr. Wilson. Yes. I imagine there's many things on Earth2.net which are happening which are much better than Dawn of the Gods. Oh, Which is shit. Well, quite. To even compare anything on Earth2.net to Dawn of the Gods is a grave insult. Indeed. And I will have you killed. Um, <laughs> not, not, not you, obviously, but uh, 
uh, you know, it's a step up from a Travisogram, obviously. But uh, well, death is a step up from a Travisogram. Uh, as, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's the next more violent thing. I can imagine one thing worse than a Travisogram, which would be a Califogram. Well, I don't know, because you kind of just, like, point and laugh at it. Oh, it's the Mad Hatter. And then he'd just that's, slink that's, away. That's what would have improved Dawn of the Gods immensely, is if Batman had just showed up and beaten the crap out of him. <laughs> if he'd gone, which one of you is Alice? <laughs> that's what it needed. Yes. Um, uh, did I? Earth 2. Earth 2. Earth 2, Earth two. Yeah. Right. Um, well... Uh, An amazing podcast has celebrated its 100th episode. Um, well, con- congratulations. Indeed. And a, a big shout-out should go to Mr. Callum Scrivens, the helmsman, with his uh, rotating cast of guest presenters and the many people he's interviewed in, the, in those episodes. And um, to celebrate the 100th, he's kind of gone slightly world's finest podcast in terms of presenting style, in that he's teamed up uh, with our boss, Michael David Sims, uh, to start going through all the episodes of an anime show called Beck, uh, which is based on music. Not necessarily Beck, the the musician. Right. Um, (laughs) Although, you know, not the most original of names. Um, and I've I've given that one a listen, and it is very good indeed. So uh, I do heartily recommend it, and uh, it's part of a series of until whenever Beck runs out. I believe there's another three or four episodes looking at that show. Um, I should also publicise something that I partially caused uh, through my. You know, I I got called out on my bullshit, and uh, something very wonderful has happened because of it. But right. The story goes as follows: um, We have a podcast that we brought, the only one to date. Well, I suppose one is kind of spun off the other, uh, called uh, Better in the Dark. Ah, um, uh, yeah. That's hosted by Mr. Thomas DJ and Mr. Derek Ferguson. And the spin-off podcast, not that it is a spin-off, but because Tom hosts it, is DJ's Comics Calvalcade. Um, but this relates to uh, Better in the Dark because um, they have their own uh, Facebook group. And I listened to... Well, I, I listened to many of their episodes. But um, in one of them, Tom brought up one of his uh, dislikes in cinema. And that is the filmic work of one Brian De Palma. Right. Now, I, as you can imagine, Dave, I've not seen a lot of Brian De Palma films. Right. That being said, the most recent one I did see uh, was due to a Dread Media recommendation, another fine podcast on Earth2.net. I believe it was basically the best at the, the awards. Um, and... Um, that film in question was called Phantom of the Paradise. Right. Which I, I was completely bowled over by. I don't know if you've seen it or not. Uh, I haven't, no. But you, are you aware of Paul Williams? Uh, the name rings a bell. He's a songwriter, 
his most notable period was the 70s. Uh, he right. was also the voice of the Penguin in uh, Batman the Animated Series. That's probably where I know it from. Paul Williams uh, essentially stars and writes the music for a 1970s music industry retelling of The Phantom of the Opera. Which is what the world needed. Which <laughs> mixes in um, the tale of Faust as well. Uh, Paul Williams plays the Faust character. Um, William McKinley plays um, a songwriter who gets done over by this Faustian record producer. Uh, screwed over completely. His music stolen. He gets sent to jail. And uh, he escapes jail and tries to get his revenge but gets disfigured in the process and decides to uh, try and bring down his empire <laughs> through his um, music club. And it's a brilliant... I love it. I really right. love it. It just touched something that, that re- really got me into it. So I was like... So based on that, and because I know Brian De Palma's... You know, he's helmed some very successful films. Uh, Carrie, Scarface, and many more... Um, uh, the Untouchables. The Untouchables. I'm a big fan of The Untouchables. Yep, with um, Sean Connery doing, attempting another accent, but <laughs> ultimately being Scottish. Yeah. Um, so I was like, so I, I posted on this Facebook group, so Tom, why don't you like Brian De Palma? Now, it was a legitimate question, but because right. Tom and I have had past disagreements about Bond films, uh, yeah. He saw it as a slight red rag um, to his <laughs> um, However, I didn't realise to how much he'd actually considered this until uh, I was on the train coming home the other day from Lancaster. And I was listening to episode uh, 125 of Better in the Dark, where they do their annual kind of big uh, obscure movie kind of review, where both hosts looked at three films each, which they thought was really underappreciated. Uh, unappreciated to the point that pe- a lot of people don't really know they exist, not that they think that it's underrated by the general movie public. For example, they had this, the unofficial sequel to Shock Treatment, in which Christopher Lee sings. Right. I forget its name, but... Uh, Better in the Dark, episode 125. So Tom decided that he is game for doing an episode look at the filmic works of Brian De Palma, who he makes no secret of the fact that he hates. But he, he proposed a challenge to listeners of the podcast, where he said he would do it if um, 25 people, or, or something like that, because Brian De Palma has 38 films. He says, right. okay, for everyone that listens, if you donate uh, a minimum of $10 to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, um, for every receipt he gets sent, he would add a Brian De Palma film to his Netflix queue with, like, top priority, sit down and watch it, and then by the time that... Like he'd seen twenty-five films, he and his co-host would record an episode. Um, and he said that if 
we passed the $100 mark, um, the two hosts would then do a commentary of uh, a Brian De Palma film, starting with The Phantom of the Paradise, just because I brought it up. And uh, it, it's, it's not a glib thing about donating to a suicide thing, because Tom very seriously stated that he himself has suffered from mental health issues. So yeah. he thought it would be a very nice way of, you know, uh, people like me putting their money where their mouth is and saying, you want me to do this? You know, help out a worthy cause and then we'll do something for you after that. Um, and if you do donate, um, then the commentaries uh, that were spoken of, they'll be free for people that did donate uh, and then they'll be made available on the Earth to store as well. Um, so that's something I, I'd very much like to devote a certain chunk of this end bit to uh, and just say that uh, I've, I've not donated myself just this moment, but I am going to. Um, uh, so what you do is you go to www.suicidepreventionlifeline.org and uh, contribute there. And I do hope they accept international donations um, because uh, I very much want to uh, help make that happen. So um, I, I will uh, put these links up on the Earth Two forums when this episode's released. Excellent. So yeah, always worth helping out a good cause. Absolutely, absolutely. Well. Uh, over on Geek Planet Online, I, I've recently announced the winners of Geek Planet's very own Editor's Choice Awards. Ah, yes, I've seen what that. What the big award season. <laughs> uh, the judging panel is me. Yes. And it's sort of based on stuff that I've seen and read, so if I haven't seen it or read it, it's not eligible. Fair. Because I can't have an opinion on it. True. But it's sort of looking to take a its cue sort of from the Kermode Awards. Okay. So if you're familiar with the Kermode Awards. Uh, I'm not, actually, no. It's uh, on the Culture Show, Mark Kermode, the film critic. Yep. Uh, he does an alternative award ceremony, which looks to reward things that have been ignored by the Oscars. Right. So the rule is that if you've been nominated for an Oscar, you can't win a Kermode. Fair enough. <laughs> you can't win a Kermode. Well, there are there are actual little statuettes that he gives to people and everything. Is it Michael Fassbender's got two? Is it? This is very childish. But is the statue that of a commode? No, no, they look, they look like Mark Kermode. Fair, fair, fair enough. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> anyway, so so with that with that sort of spirit of wanting to reward things have been you know overlooked elsewhere. That is sort of the basis of of the editor's choice awards. It's like the highlight things that other things may have been. I feel might have been passed over elsewhere. So you can find that on my uh, my column, which is iProbert, which you can find on uh, geekplanetonline.com. Or if you happen to see my uh, me posted on the Earth Two forums, there's a big link to that in my signature as well, so you can read my ramblings. This is Servalan calling Commander Mori. Are you still on the Liberator? Servalan calling Commander Mori on Open Channel. Are you on the Liberator? Reply. No, he isn't, but I am. What can I do for you, Servalan? Villa? 
Are you in command of the Liberator? For your information, Madam President, we are all here, ready and waiting. I think I could see you on the screen. Yes. I know exactly where you are. You're at grid reference 1370. Better start running. Well, we'll say goodbye and not say hello. Because <laughs> we've been recording for a while and um, Dawn of the Gods has thoroughly depressed us both. So We're broken men. Absolutely. I mean, it's not the fact we've had to record this early. No, it's because we've watched Dawn of the Gods. Yeah. Which is shit. Hey! Like the web. Not, don't, don't physically like the web. I was saying. No. <laughs> physically like the web? <laughs> no, no. That, that, that sounds like a potential visit to an emergency room. <laughs> Dawn of the Gods is shit. In the same way that the web is. There we go. Yes. Grammar. It it needs work. <laughs> we'll get it right. We'll get it right. We'll we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. So, uh I will say that if you've got feedback, please drop us a line at shakeandblake at earth hyphen two dot net. Or or as an alternative you could send it to shakeandblake at geekplanetonline.com. That's what the hipsters are doing. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Sorry. Low blow. Sorry, I'm tired too. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hipsters. <laughs> okay, well, uh, until April, uh, when we'll be doing two more episodes of Blake 7, those being The Harvest of Ky- Kairos. Kairos and City at the Edge of the World. Not to play my hand too early, but I'm looking forward to both of these episodes. Oh, good. So am I. <laughs> uh, and with that, to bed. Uh, so, good night from me, Ian Wilson. And from me, Dave Private. Thank you for listening to Shake and Blake.